This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's uh, take a look at some interesting findings. And this is looking at how old our our, uh, universe really is. A new theory is it's a lot older than we thought. Well, Rajendra Gupta is an adjunct professor of physics at the University of Ottawa and is joining us now to talk more about this. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me on your show. Thank you, Joe. Well, this is, I find this fascinating in that so we're getting this information from the James Webb Space Telescope and a lot more questions about the universe. What are you seeing when it comes to these current models and what that tells us about the age of the universe? So the age of the universe is something determined indirectly by the models. We try to fit the observations and then try to find out what explains those observations. And we might come out with certain different numbers. And when I try to fit the model, I develop to explain the observations which are already um, there in existence for a long time. And the new observations, which are from James Webb, then I find that that model requires, it gives it used the age of the universe about twice that which people accepted up to now. And that's a big difference that we're looking at it, that it's twice as old as what people thought. Yes, and the reason it is that the James Webb Space Telescopes, some of these observations are not easily explained with the current models. So I developed a model based on some of the things I read in the uh, literature and some publications which happened last year, and they were able to explain James Webb uh, uh, observations, but not the some of the earlier observations. So I thought of maybe if we combine the two models, then we might be able to explain both, and that's what resulted in that uh, uh, larger. Um, age of the universe, or higher age of the universe. And so before the James Webb telescope started giving us this information and and sending it back, was there even an an opportunity to mix those two models and to do that? Actually, I had tried that before, but then it was only academic exercise. It was not required for explaining something, some new phenomena. So this uh, kind of new modeling and at any time you launch or you have a, a, a better observations, then you you have to see whether existing model can explain. And it, uh, inadvertently or eventually, the, you le- it leads to the modification of some of our understanding and models. 
And when you look at this as well and kind of the, this new information, I, I was really interested when, when reading about this, that uh, kind of the cosmic dawn and what was happening there and these periods of evolution. Does this shed more light on that or what do we know about that time period? Actually, this is what we are trying to understand with James Webb. This is $10 billion toy the astronomers have launched in, in the sky. And that's what is giving us so much additional information, which is contrary to what the predictions were. And I might, I might about the age, let me try to go back a little bit. When, when the expansion of the universe was seen first time by uh, astronomers in the 20s and 30s last century, uh, then uh, the age was seen to be about 2 billion years. Later on, it was around the uh, turn of the century or just before Hubble Space Telescope was launched, uh, it was, age was considered between 7 and 20 billion years. Hubble Space Telescope observations really crystallized that age to about 13.8. Now the new toy comes, which is much more powerful than the other one, and that is specifically when it focuses on the cosmic dawn, we get the observation which are not easily explained with that 13.8 billion. So this kind of is an evolutionary process. So we find, I found that maybe this model, which is still has to be tested in various other things. Uh, and since the publication of my uh, paper, I have found some other things which it satisfied very easily. So there is some confirmation of what I have predicted. But really, these are the things you have to go through in the science that you propose a model, it fits certain things, and then you have to continue with that process to see whether it fits the most of the other things we, we know. So that process is going on at this moment. So that must be good, though, knowing that there's there's some confirmation of what your theory is and what you've been testing. Because when I first saw this, I thought, too, that if, if we now think that instead of 13 billion years old, the universe is actually 26 billion years, it's such a difference, then what's to say there won't be another telescope or another toy that sheds a whole different theory on things? Oh, definitely. Definitely. It could happen. It could happen. And the thing is this, we... We are very conservative. Scientists are very conservative. They don't want to say something which is not yet proven. So when when we get something, new information, and we have to change our ideas, we should be adapted to it. And that has been happening uh, throughout the scientific uh, community and, and for ages. And so where do you go from here? Like you said, then there's been a confirmation or, and learning more and kind of putting these two models together. And uh, I know uh, using kind of different frequencies and seeing what's happening there. Where do you take the research from this point? I tell you what, what we have to do, we have to still test these models with the, uh, with the lot of data which is coming and which already exists because I haven't or we have not yet established that all that data which is uh, 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 which has been understood by existing models is can be also compliant with the new models. Once that is done, then we might say it is good. But that again, as I said, we might it is still limiting. It doesn't mean what the old model did up to now is 
is all wrong. No, no, it is, it is there. Like, as we tell Newton's laws of motions, it still explains our everyday life. However, when you go to the GPS system, then GPS does require Einstein's theory of relativity and general relativity to make the correction so that our GPS precision remains good. So, you know, this is the way is that whatever existed exists up to now doesn't mean it, it is all wrong. It is still good. All right. Well, it's a very, very interesting research. Professor Gupta, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much. Thank you very much for inviting me on your show, Jill. Bye-bye now. This is Mornings with Simi. It is 6.37. That means it's time to check in with Rob Shaw, political correspondent with Czech News. Rob, good morning to you. Good morning, Jill. I think this story is going to get people talking, and you have just published a column about the raises that have been given to political staffers. So what is happening here? Yeah, this is an interesting one. There are people that are called uh, chiefs of staff who work for ministers. They sort of are running the offices that uh, that the ministers have, but they're they're what we, what we would consider to be partisan appointees. You know, they're not nonpartisan civil servants. They're not hired through a sort of merit based process. Uh, they are new Democrats, partisan new Democrats, often the young sort of hyper partisans who run around assisting ministers uh, in their offices. They received in the last five months two very large pay increases that were very quietly done by Premier David Eby's office. And for some of them, uh, it is, has been worth as much as 17% uh, increase to their pay or $17,000. So there's the issue of kind of the size of the pay increase, um, which is much larger than anyone else uh, has received in the public sector, teachers, nurses, anyone else uh, in the last uh, you know, round of contracts signed by the government. But then there's a kind of longstanding um, sort of delicate threshold that exists at the legislature where the staff of the ministers have always earned less than the MLAs. So the political staff earn less than the elected officials. And that's because they're all running around the hallways. They're all, you know, kind of um, yeah, participating in the process, but the MLAs are the system. They're elected. They earn, you know, around $115,000 and the new pay hikes for these political staff are $122,000. So for the first time, the assistance to the ministers have leapfrogged the elected officials. And that threshold, you know, has been flirted with by the previous BC Liberal and John Horgan administrations they always sort of stop short because there's a lot of backbench MLAs who ran for office, got elected, um, who don't like the idea of, as Mike Duffy called them um, infamously federally, kids in short pants <laughs> running around earning more money than they do, um, often in their first job. And uh, that sort of, um, I think, delicate balance there is potentially a bit of an issue for the EB government, uh, depending on how its backbench of, of MLAs uh, feel about um, young kids uh, earning more money than they do. 
Is that why do you think that this didn't get, it wasn't put out there? It's not like there was a news release about it. It wasn't being talked about when it was done. It was quite quiet until you started writing about it. Yeah, I think that is part of it for sure. The NDP caucus was never told of any of these decisions, which were made over the last five months. So all of these pay increases occurred uh, in two steps over five months, and the elected officials didn't know about them until yesterday. Uh, it, I think it is a delicate subject that you could make an argument was not well handled by the premier's office. Um, I don't know why they chose this time to give these raises uh, in the way that they did. Uh, but they did, uh, you know, the opposition BC United has jumped all over this saying, look, like, you know, this is more than the public sector is getting. It's coming at a time of, of affordability challenges with interest rates uh, going up. And it's coming at a time uh, where MLAs all agreed to freeze their salaries in the last year in recognition of those affordability challenges from all parties. So the elected officials freeze their salary. The politicians talk about affordability. And then the branch of the EB uh, premier's office jacks the pay quietly uh, for the chiefs of staff. Those things don't look good. And I think that's one of the reasons why this was done very quietly. And, and also why the New Democrats have taken steps to make sure you can't really find out about it. Um, the paper record of this doesn't exist because they've changed the way that salaries get disclosed. Uh, and so... It's not possible when someone is hired to figure out their salary anymore. Uh, you get these things called bands instead, and the bands get quietly adjusted to go up, and people in the bands get quietly, um, you know, uh, given extra increases, and there's no record publicly of that. And so it's hard to keep track of what's going on within the millions of dollars that get spent in and around political staff. And that's a, that's a deliberate decision by the NDP government uh, and one that they know they know what they're doing when they do it. And, and I think it's to avoid kind of having to talk about this kind of stuff. And so this is uh, this is for about uh, you've written uh, about 20 chiefs of staff that are getting these raises. What is the premier saying about this now that it's out there and, and you've written about it and we're finding out about these big pay increases? How is the premier defending this? Well, the statement from the premier's office is that the chiefs of staff are highly skilled individuals who manage ministers' offices uh, and provide executive level support to ministers um, and that they need to do this to help with a recruitment and challenge during a labor shortage uh, and that these chiefs of staff are still paid less than their equivalents in Alberta and Ontario, for example. And I think, you know, that would... That works when you're talking about the civil service. So someone hired to be a nonpartisan civil servant to oversee, you know, agriculture policy or something like that. It's a harder argument when you're talking about very hyperpartisan people, folks who come from volunteering on a new Democrat campaign and then are given a job working for a minister or come from the youth wing of the new Democrat party or come from, you know, a, a previous part within the party. And are they, these are jobs that aren't posted they're jobs that you don't go through competitions to win. They are cabinet orders that mm. are given to partisans. They're not given to anyone other than people who are loyal New Democrats. BC United, green people are not getting these jobs. And so it's the recruitment argument, I think, is a little bit rich. There's no recruitment problem to hire hyperpartisans uh, during a labor shortage, uh, especially when there are no other 
new democrat government uh, essentially in in the in the country so i'm not sure that makes any sense i think what it really is is pressure inside the ndp government year six of of office for people jockeying for titles jockeying for salary people wanting their pay increased um people and, and governments get like this you know they've been in power for a while they think you know you, i'm entitled to my entitlements and i would like more money now thank you very much and they do do hard like there's no question that chiefs of staff do difficult jobs in a sense that they have to sometimes handle mercurial ministers and work long hours uh, and that type of thing um but but they are unique jobs uh and i think for the public they are sensitive jobs and it's part of it's part of a larger i think concern about how the sort of eb government is is or isn't sort of tuned into the public sentiment during this affordability challenge. Chatting with Rob Shaw, political correspondent for Czech News. And Rob, we are going to talk about the overdose numbers, but just one more point on what you were talking about before and your column out today about these raises. Are there going to be, do you think there will be any fallout, any more reaction? You mentioned that BC United leader Kevin Falcon has talked about this being really out of touch with what's going on with people trying to make ends meet. Is it going to just blow over or do you think there'll be any more pushback or, or conversation about this? Yeah, I think, you know, political staff salaries are part of a larger sort of uh, narrative that opposition governments, you know, and you can take the party names out. They always do the same thing. Governments have staff. They hire more staff. They pay staff certain amounts and oppositions keep track of those, highlight them, call the government out of touch uh, and use that as kind of a narrative. And so the the opposition, the BC United has been trying to sort of talk about all the new people hired in David Eby's office. He has much more staff working for him, uh, uh, special advisors, uh, people who are uh, in different positions, and they'll continue to advance. This is sort of an, a bloated, um, highly paid on your tax dollars, hyperpartisan Eby administration, and that's not new. I mean, it would be that way if the two parties reverse their roles. So it's it it's a very sensitive issue political staff, how many, how much they're paid, and all governments kind of have to justify that. I think in this case, though, after having just gone through contract talks with teachers and nurses and social workers and things, who people who settled for around a 7% in the last year pay increase, to watch um, the political staffers for ministers uh, earn, in some cases, up to 17% in five months, is going to be harder for the government to to justify if uh, some of those unions don't like the way that looks. Uh, and I'm sure they don't either. And I thought it was something interesting, too, that you mentioned when you talk about the John Horgan government and what his government had done when it comes to uh, kind of keeping these increases or or how those increases kind of reflect or, or the um, uh, when when Premier John Horgan was leaving that cabinet order linking the raises mm-hmm. to, to those negotiations, whereas this doesn't feel like there's really any link there at all. No, I mean, in the past, political staff, their salaries were raised and and lowered depending on, you know, the government. They're partisan people and partisan decisions are made by the premier's office to to hire people at certain rates and they have to justify that. What the Horgan government did at the very tail end as he was leaving is he linked, passed a cabinet order that linked partisan salaries to the civil service salaries so that when teachers and nurses negotiate pay increases, those public sector increases become automatic for the partisan staff, the chiefs of staff. And that is new. And and that causes part of this raise. The other part is the government 
the EB office decided to give adjustments to people inside the bands. They're all jockeying for competitive rates. And so they started, here's some money for you. Here's some money for you. This address is an inequity. You were, and then they just started parceling it out. And that, that led to this. And those two things are new and they're unique decisions by this administration. And uh, we will see if, if future premiers, you know, continue to do that or, or how they do it. Right, because what's the point of having a link to those raises, to the, the public sector raises, if you're just going to go in and, and, and top them up and add more anyway? Yeah, I mean, the point is people want to earn more money. You know? <laughs> that's, <laughs> sure. that's the point. And, and, and it's the job, I think, of a responsible sort of um, sensitive political apparatus to say, I know you work hard. I know you probably in the private sector would earn more. But this is the threshold you can make here because these are public dollars at, a, at an affordability crisis. And the extent to which the EB uh, administration didn't do that, didn't see it, potentially doesn't understand it, or worse, doesn't care about how it looks, that's the sort of political fallout of this. Because I can't tell, I can't, I honestly cannot tell you why they have done this other than people wanted more money. And, uh, that appears to be it, and they're willing to face the consequences of that. Uh, let's talk a little bit as well about the latest drug overdose numbers that were released yesterday, and uh, those numbers still incredibly grim. Yeah, I mean, we are all watching to see if any of the things the government is doing on the toxic drug crisis are working or causing any lowering in the number of fatalities. And it does not appear to be the case. The numbers yesterday, 198 people died in July. We are on track now in the first seven months um, for a record year. We have a record number of deaths. Again, I know we say that every month, but uh, it's extraordinary. Six people a day now dying. And I talked to the chief coroner and she said, if six people died in a car crash today, that would be a tragic news story that people would be upset about. If six people died drowning in a lake, People would be very upset and things would be done to change it. Every day, six people die of toxic drugs, a preventable death. And she feels and has said many times, we're not moving fast enough. We need Her opinion is we need more safer supply. I know that is a contentious issue out there. We also need more and better addictions treatment with less wait times. That system is a mess. Uh, and we need you know more compassion to try and help keep people alive uh, while they go through a recovery journey. Not everyone is ready to recover right away. And some people have relapses and that's just the way it is. The system has to help them. Um, it is not getting better. And we are in, uh, you know, year six, year seven, I think, of the public health emergency there. And it's just astounding uh, and heartbreaking how bad it continues to be. Mm, it, uh, it certainly is. So, Rob, let's leave it there for today. But thank you so much. And we'll talk to you again tomorrow. Okay, take care. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, last week, Saskatchewan joined New Brunswick in adopting a new gender and pronoun policy for schools. This is a policy that would require parental consent for students who wish to change their name or pronouns being used at school. There has been a lot of debate about this. Certainly, there was debate before that change was made. And we now have a new study. This was done by the Angus Reid Institute, and it finds that Canadians are also very divided when it comes to what level of parental 
parental involvement is necessary or wanted when it comes to children and preferred identification. So when asked which policy they would prefer for school districts, two in five Canadians, or 43%, said that parents should be informed and must give consent if a child wants to change how they identify. It was only about 14% that said a parent should have no role in the decision. So let's talk a little bit more about this now with Christopher Wells, an associate professor and Canada Research Chair for the Public Understanding of Sexual and Gender Minority Youth at McEwen University in Edmonton. Thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, we'll get into more of the findings of this Angus Reid Institute survey. But when we talk about having these policies and consent of parents, what are your thoughts on the fact that we are even having this conversation? Well, I think we can trace a lot of this back in Canada almost 15 or more years ago with uh, the legalization of, of same-sex marriage. You know, after that battle was was lost by uh, social conservatives and and evangelical uh, groups, uh, the next focus became schools uh, because you know if you if you want to uh, change the future of society, you start by banning or trying to control what is taught in in the school system. So that's what's led to banning books, censoring a curriculum. We've seen in British Columbia uh, targeting sexual orientation and gender identity policies, um, challenges against gay-straight alliances. So what we're seeing today is is really nothing new, but uh, a long line of opposition really against uh, uh, two SLGBTQ identities and the right for young people to exist. Uh, but when we're talking about specifically whether or not parents should be involved, why do you think there is so much focus on that? Well, I think it's really a red herring uh, argument because uh, nothing is stopping from parents uh, being involved. It, it's pretty simple. If you want to know how your child identifies, all you have to do as a parent is ask them. And if they feel safe and comfortable, they'll tell you. But if they don't, uh, you know, the school shouldn't be outing them because that can cause great harm to their mental health and well-being. You know, the reality in Canada is still, you know, it's quite shocking that between 20 to 40 percent of all homeless or street-involved youth identify as a, a sexual and gender minority. And that's often because, you know, their families have failed to support them and kick them out and their schools haven't been safe places. So, you know, what's left for these young people? And too often it's just simply trying to survive on the streets. And when you say outing them, you mean outing them to their parents? Yeah, absolutely. And that can be as, as simple as if a, if a student in the, in the classroom feels comfortable to go to their teacher and say, I want you to use this name, but I don't want you to tell anybody about it. Um, they should honor that, uh, that request um, because that, that child is on their own journey to be able to have that conversation with their parents. And absolutely, schools will support those young people when they're ready to share that information and in many cases, that uh, entails creating a safety plan for those uh, young people, just in case, you know, that conversation isn't supportive or it isn't positive. But, you know, overwhelmingly, we know that the, the majority of parents uh, do support and love their children for who they are.
Right, which is definitely a good thing. I know the survey talked talked about this. It asked people and then broke down the numbers with respondents to the survey of having children younger than aged 18 or didn't have young children. But I don't think it really went into the policy and, and the age of if there was a difference of opinion, depending on, say, if we're talking about elementary school students as opposed to high school students. Do you think there there is a difference or, or should it be broken down? and we're talking about different age groups? Well, I think, uh, you know, uh, uh, talking about the capacity of, of young people to, to make informed decisions is, is always important. You know, it, uh, you know, it's not really age that, that's used. It's actually, you know, the mental uh, capacity and understanding of the issues. You know, um, when uh, children are, are seeking medical uh, treatment, um, uh, depending on on how they understand that treatment, they're often able to consent to that themselves, right? It isn't this so-called magic number of, of 18 or 16 that we're seeing, you know, targeted in policies. But I think ultimately, you know, what we're talking about here under the guise of parental rights is we forget about what are the rights of children. Children also have rights, and that right extends for them to be safe and to, to identify um, who they are and uh, to be able to express that freely and openly without consequences and risk. Right. And 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 I, I guess that gets back to uh, what this survey was asking people. And again, what uh, the school being a safe place and being a place where where maybe you identify a certain way. And that doesn't necessarily you don't make that assumption that that's also what's happening in someone's home life. Yeah, you know, uh, absolutely. And I think it's about being able to have conversation. That's really what this comes down to. Are we openly talking about, you know, these issues around our dinner tables, you know, in our schools and in our communities? Because, you know, that's how attitudes uh, change and and minds uh, begin to uh, open up through that kind of important conversation. And that's exactly what uh, schools should be engaged with. Uh, with the policies now that we've seen in Saskatchewan uh, joining New Brunswick and having that policy requiring parental consent, uh, how would that do, do you think even play out in that if, if a student says this is my pronoun or this is how I'm identifying now, what, what would that mean that the teacher would then have to reach out to the parents and make sure that the parents know that this is happening? That's basically what uh, what the uh, the policies say that the parents must be notified if their child chooses different pronouns or or a different name than their 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 name assigned at birth. And in effect, you know that could out them, that could place them at uh, increased risk because you know they're if if they're asking their school to do that and and they're not uh, feeling safe or comfortable to do so at home, right? That really shows you where the the level of anxiety is in their lives. It's, it's not in the classroom, but, you know, it's uh, in their living rooms. Is it something then, or is this kind of overreaching the role of schools and teachers in that if a teacher then does that, is there, some, is there a, a requirement that should be in place or does that then, then become the teacher's role to, to make sure that that child is okay and that child's not going home to a home environment where this, this is going to make things very tense and potentially dangerous? Uh, well, absolutely. You know, the the the, the research shows us that uh, when you know children are are respected and affirmed for who they are, um, it helps to improve their mental health and their well being. And when you don't, it increases uh, you know their their risk of uh, suicide ideation. 
Um, so, you know, really, um, it's it's the job of schools to look after the best interests of the child. And sometimes, you know, uh, that means uh, having the different conversations at school than you would at home. But again, right, there's nothing preventing parents from having these conversations and starting these discussions, you know, with their children. So it's a bit of a, a red herring to, to, to put the blame on, on schools and to talk about this under the guise of, of parental rights. Really, uh, when we look at the history of that, that's all about an anti-LGBTQ ideology. It's just not about names and pronouns. It's about the very right for 2SLGBTQ children to actually exist in our society. Christopher, uh, Christopher Wells, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much. Uh, it's my pleasure. Always great to speak with you. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, let's check back in with contributor Scott Chance. And Scott, you are looking at something that I know can be confusing and people are wondering what's the right choice, talking about packaging. Yeah, it feels like this is kind of having its moment, right? Sustainable packaging, like everywhere we look, uh, this company or that company or this takeout product or whatever is uh, making a big deal about their new sustainable, biodegradable, whatever packaging. A big, uh, very popular example uh, is the Paper straws. People love slash hate uh, the paper straws. Uh, I took my daughter out for ice cream the other day, and the ice cream came with a wooden spoon, you mm-hmm. know, like the takeout wooden, so it's not plastic. But she couldn't stop complaining because every time she took a bite, she said it tasted gross because she was like <laughs> tasting the wood. But everybody's making a big deal about all this packaging and stuff. And, you know, there's been a bit of research that's gone into some of this stuff. And people are finding out that perhaps these things aren't either A, as good for us or B, as good for the environment as we initially thought. And maybe we're kind of focusing on the wrong thing and updating all of this packaging. So I got in touch with Natalia Lumby. She's professor of graphic communications management at Toronto Metropolitan University and asked her, like, what is the deal with sustainable packaging? Is it the right thing for us to be doing? Does it even make a difference? Like people have like this love-hate relationship. Like what's the story there, Natalia? Yeah, certainly it feels like packaging has been a little bit under fire, especially lately in the news. We're becoming a little bit more cognizant as citizens about climate change and the impact of climate change. And so I think what happens with packaging is when we consume products, packaging is left over. And so that sense of waste is heightened. And so what I like to think about is, of course, you know, if, they, if we're consuming too many things, there will be too many packages. And packages are just the thing that sort of um, highlights for people that they're over-consuming. So for me, we're, we're sort of breaching a consumption problem, and packaging is helping us highlight that that's the case. Uh, and, of course, there's some legislation to deal with the waste, and that's really important because we can have packaging without it being wasteful. That's the ideal sort of solution that we're able to responsibly consume and that the packaging gets, uh, you know, circulated and recycled and uh, kept in the system without being wasteful or going to landfill. Okay, yeah. I really, I actually hadn't heard that perspective and I really like that, that packaging mm-hmm. re- reflects how much we're actually consuming because there's a much bigger issue going on there. That's that's such an interesting point. Now, one of the things that has happened here in in Vancouver, uh, and, and I'm sure in other places across the country, we've seen like little pop-up shops where it's like nothing is packaged. You bring you bring in your reusable bottle and they refill it for you. Like there's no bags. There's no like for example, it was like a cosmetic shop. They go and they would refill your shampoo and face wash and all of that type of stuff. But of course, those places have all sort of fizzled out. It feels like until there's a much bigger level of adoption 
uh, we won't see that. But to your point, it's like it's not even about the packaging. It's about the consumption. Yes, and packaging is actually a very small component of the waste associated with a product. Like if you think about anything you've got purchased in the store lately, for it to get into a package in the first place, that's the majority of the carbon footprint, right? Mm-hmm. So if we're all talking about the planet, packaging is the least of your worries. It's the thing that you're consuming inside the package that we need to start actively thinking about. Now, zero-waste shops, as you mentioned, are a really phenomenal solution for reducing the amount of packaging um, in industries where we consume often. So healthcare, beauty, food, um, those would do really well without a package in that sort of bulk setting. And bulk stores, of course, have existed for a long, 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 uh, you know, long time. Um, They were sort of before packaging got highly technical and really... um, sort of efficient, that would have been the default, right? Like maybe in the 40s, 50s, you would have gone into a store, there would have been more bulk options. I think what's happened is um, zero waste stores and bulk stores took sort of a beating during COVID because people became weary about the open air aspect mm, of yeah. packaging. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think, I think we'll make our way back there. I don't know about you locally, but at my local, for example, Loblaws, they had a, a quite big um, section of bulk goods and you could tell that the store was poised to introduce even more. And they were branded products. So, you know, it was M&M, but in bulk, right? So it's still the same brands that we're used to, just offered without packaging. And of course, unfortunately, post-COVID, all of those are pre-wrapped in plastic bags because, you know, people feel uh, more safe that way. And of course, there is a, a healthcare aspect to making sure that that, you know, packaging keeps food safe and free from germs and things like that. Those are important. Is any of this stuff that we that we have been seeing like um, more more biodegradable cups and paper straws and um, you know we're, I like you get a, a wood fork or like a like you know yeah. what I mean it's like a wood or it's like a cardboard fork instead of a plastic fork when you get takeout is any of this stuff gonna make a difference? So I think it's really, I have a friend who once said to me, you know, no matter what you're doing and how defeated you feel, you're moving a step in some kind of direction. So it's more important that we're having this conversation right now talking about straws than what the impact of straws and and cutlery actually is. Hmm. I would argue to say that replacing a takeout cutlery from one material to another is not going to get you to reduce global warming and climate change impacts, right? right. Because we're not changing changing the behavior. And so are there, um, are there items that are less, uh, um, less bad for the environment? Yeah, yeah, there's materials that are better for the environment. And, you know, researchers are working through those and biodegradables can be promising if there's a system to actually process them. So currently they're contentious because a lot of cities don't have the infrastructure to actually handle them and they're, um, you know, messing around with the plastics recycling system because they look like plastic. So again, it's a systems issue. I wish I had like a really easy answer for you. Um, yeah. You know, like, yes, what, yes, wood forks are going to get us there. But no, <laughs> but that's simply, simply not true. A more of a slowdown culture or a little bit of a, 
you know, really think through your com- consumption, that's where I would focus. That's Natalia Lumby. She's a graphic de- a graphic communications management professional from Toronto Metropolitan University. And uh, summation, Jill, give me a plastic fork with my ice cream so it doesn't <laughs> taste like wood and I get splinters in my tongue. And give me a plastic straw because a, wood, a paper straw disintegrates and then I end up throwing the whole thing away and it's a waste. Exactly. And apparently the paper straws too, there are a lot of chemicals in a lot of them. They're not really any better for people or the environment. Here we go. The answer is just to like limit our consumption of those things. Like uh, I'm all in favor of like bringing your own uh, cup to the place. And, you know, I'm also even open to the idea of like carrying around a reusable straw. I'm fine with all of that. But the idea of like replacing my McFlurry spoon with a wood spoon is not making any difference. It's (laughs) just making me unhappy. (laughs) There you go. Uh, Scott, thank you so much. You're welcome. This is Mornings with Simi. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah. Well, immunotherapy and a new program at BC Cancer's Dealey Research Centre is giving people a second chance at life. In one case, a Vancouver Island man defied cancer and got a lot more time with his loved ones. And the program's innovative approach is strengthening immune responses against cancer, and it is guided by dedicated experts, including Dr. Brad Nelson, founder and co-leader of BC Cancer's immunotherapy program. And Dr. Brad Nelson joins us on the line now. Thank you so much for being here. Good morning, and thank you so much for having me on your show. Well, thank you for doing this. And what's an amazing story. And this was a Vancouver, sorry, Vancouver Island man, a Victoria man, who was actually to the point of looking at medically assisted dying and has now been given a really a new outlook thanks to this immunotherapy. Tell us a bit about this program and what makes it different. Well, the, uh, so your listeners may have heard of immunotherapy. It's a, a new approach to cancer treatment. And just in the last five years or so, it's, it's really uh, swept through oncology in a very positive way, impacting all sorts of types of cancer. There's different types of immunotherapy. The one that we're talking about today and that was the subject of, um, uh, that helped this gentleman you've referred to is called CAR T-cell therapy. And this is the use of genetically engineered immune cells um, uh, to treat a patient's cancer. Um, The way it works uh, is that the patient, uh, and in this case, uh, uh, somebody with a relapsed leukemia or lymphoma, gives a blood sample to our lab, and we then take uh, that blood sample, we isolate the T cells from it. These are your infection-fighting cells, and we insert a gene into the T cells which hardwires them to be able to recognize and destroy cancer cells. In the last step then, the T cells are given back to the patient as an IV infusion, and they then circulate throughout the body, and they are now programmed to be able to seek and destroy cancer cells. And it's proven to be very effective. Hmm. And when they do that, when they're put back and they're, they're seeking and killing cancer cells, is it immediate or what kind of timeline are we looking at? It's immediate, yeah. The, the T-cells are alive um, when they go back in and they start uh, dividing. So the number of T-cells starts to increase. So you really mount uh, a bigger army of T-cells fighting the cancer. And when they see their cancer cell, they lock onto it within seconds of contact um, and start poking holes in the membrane of the, of the cancer cell 
and injecting uh, toxic enzymes, which just cause that cell to dissolve within a few minutes of contact. So yes, a very immediate effect. Um, but you know, cancer, a cancer patient will have a lot of cancer cells in their body typically. So although it starts immediately, it still takes uh, several weeks and sometimes even months to have the full effect. And in the case of the Victoria man that we're talking about, I know he was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and then that cancer relapsed. Is it specifically for that type of cancer or can this therapy be used for different types of cancers? The therapy we're talking about today is uh, directed towards a protein called CD19, which is found on certain leukemias and lymphomas. And so the CAR T-cells, as I said, they're, they're hardwired or, or programmed to recognize the cancer cell. What that really means is they're, they're recognizing cells that express this marker called CD19. So the, this therapy is, is only effective against those types of cancer. But what we and, and thousands of other, re- other researchers around the world are trying to do now is build on this success against these blood cancers and apply the same approach to other uh, cancers. Uh, for example, in my lab, we're focusing on ovarian cancer and trying to figure out how to make effective CAR T cells to treat ovarian cancer. It's a very interesting uh, research and therapy. Uh, what about the side effects? Because uh, cancer treatments have been known in the past to have some pretty harsh side effects. Yeah, there, uh, it really varies from patient to patient. Um, the side effects are mainly attributable to the fact that this really creates a very strong immune response in patients. And so when a person, you know, we've all had a viral infection of one sort or another, you know, COVID would be a recent example. And just that, you know, the fevers one gets, the chills, the general malaise, uh, those symptoms are actually due to your, uh, the effects of your immune system fighting something. Uh, that's, that's actually telling you your immune system's a uh, bit hard at work. So with CAR T-cell therapy, uh, uh, one can have those same sorts of symptoms. But given that this is a supercharged immune response, you know, we've, we've engineered the cells in a very strong way, it, it can be a very intense immune response. And those symptoms yeah, can be quite, quite significant. And, and patients sometimes um, need to uh, be hospitalized uh, in order to manage them. Uh, that said, clinicians have gotten really good at, at managing these patients post-therapy. And so uh, patients are able to successfully get past those symptoms, which typically only last a few days or weeks, and then they return uh, to normal. Well, Dr. Nelson, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, This is uh, extremely interesting and promising uh, research and therapy. Appreciate your time uh, on the show today. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. We have talked about Ozempic, the drug that was approved for people with diabetes, but is getting a lot of attention because it is being used as a weight loss drug. Well, apparently there is now a worldwide shortage of Ozempic, and that means that refills are going to be limited. Joining me to talk more about this is Dr. Tom Elliott, Medical Director with BC Diabetes. Dr. Elliott, great to talk with you again. 
Good morning, Joe. Good to be on the show. Well, this is something that we heard from the health minister about the use of Ozempic and making sure that there would be supplies for people with diabetes, as that's what the drug was originally approved for. What are your thoughts on the fact that we're now seeing this shortage and seeing some pharmacies uh, saying that they may have to limit things? Well, I've, I've heard a lot about it, Jill, but in, but in, in practice, you know, I've, I've heard nothing from my clients, um, of whom I have a great many on Ozempic. Uh, the, my rep did warn me that, the, uh, that one of the formulations of, of Ozempic might be in short supply. The Ozempic comes in a, in a four milligram pen and a two milligram pen. The two milligram is a starter pen. And she warned me that the four milligram pen might be short for a while, but I have not had that confirmed by any clients yet. So I'm, I'm yet to see evidence that this uh, shortage is impacting my clients. Is there a difference then when you're talking the two different, the four milligram pen and the two milligram pen? Is is there a difference there if somebody is using Ozempic for weight loss? Would they be using one of those specifically, or or would it could it be either of those? Well. If, if they were cost conscious, which, which is everybody I know, they'd be using the four milligram pen because it's, it's half price. The, 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 the drug itself is half the cost uh, compared to the two milligram pen. So a two, two milligram pen is just for starters. If you're on maintenance, you're on the four milligram pen because that is the cheapest way to get the drug. Right. Okay. And and is the concern as well, or do you, is the reason that we might be seeing this because it is being used for for weight loss? It's being used for things other than diabetes. I think that's possible and even probable. Um, though I, you know, I I, I I doubt that Nova Nordisk will not be able to ramp up its production to meet demand. So I'm. I'm a bit skeptical about this shortage thing. And when you say you're skeptical, then what would be the reasoning or why would we be hearing about a shortage or be, be hearing about this kind of warning about this if it wasn't actually something that's being seen by people who are on this drug? Um, well, well, you know, that's, that's a big topic. Um, I, um, you know, I have, I have been told by another media person that they heard that there was a shortage. Um, you know, I, I can only speculate as to what's going on. But, but you know, from, my, my, from what I've seen, there is, there is, the shortage is not uh, significant. So I, I don't think any of your listeners need, need to be concerned about it. All right. Is there also other drugs that I know we, we focus so much and talk so much about Ozempic and because of its use for weight loss, but are there other drugs as well that are being used in the same way? Yes, there, there's, there's another drug called Trulicity or, or Dulaglutide made by Eli Lilly, which, which is available. It's not covered by Pharmacare, but it's almost as good as Ozempic. And then in the next six months, we expect another drug uh, made by Eli Lilly to come out and compete head-to-head with Ozempic. It's called Terzepatide or Monjaro. So, you know, there is, there's lots of competition um, and that can only be good for, for my patients and your listeners, Jill, because it's going to drive prices down. And then, of course, you know, there'll be, there'll be 
more drugs later on because the market is so is so very big, and these drugs are so very uh, effective. It has to be said. Uh, the reason that this talk about ozempic shortages is because it is so widely used and so effective. And when you say widely used and effective, are, are you talking about for weight loss specifically or widely used and effective uh, also for, for diabetes? Well, in, in, in my clinic, uh, we have four other endocrinologists working with me. We have 2,200 people on ozempic. So we use it because it's effective. Um, and because it's covered by, by pharmacare. Um, you know, what proportion of those are on it simply for weight loss? I would say less than 10%. So in my practice, it's, it's, it's a minor uh, indication, but, uh, you know, it, perhaps in the United States, it's, it's higher. There are more people using it for obesity. But regardless, it, it, it is very good for weight loss, whether you have diabetes or not. Right. And I know we've talked about this in the past and about some of the concerns with side effects and whether or not it is it is a good thing to be prescribing specifically or just for weight loss. But are you still seeing that as a concern? Yeah, side effects are always a concern, Jill. You know, for, for pretty much any drug, whenever a doctor prescribes a drug, um, he or she should speak to any side effects, whether they're common or, or, or rare. With, with Ozempic and, and, and Trulicity and, and, and with Monjaro coming up, about 10% of people can't take these drugs because of nausea and vomiting. So I, you know, I say to the patient, we, we start with a small dose, we increase it gradually. If you are more than just a little bit queasy, then, then you shouldn't increase the dose. And if, if you're feeling, frankly, sick, then you probably should stop the drug. And that, that ends up being around 10% of, of my clients. All right. Otherwise, there, there, there really are, you know, there, there really are no other concerns about the drug. Um, you know, th- there was a scare about, about a thyroid cancer in rats. We haven't seen that in humans. People worry about pancreatitis. We haven't seen that in humans. Some people complain of some, some constipation. I, I tell them to increase their fiber intake. So really the only thing uh, my clients or your listeners need to worry about is, is nausea and vomiting. And, uh, and just to go back as well, so with Health Canada saying that there, there appears to be a supply disruption in, in, uh, around the world in other countries and we're anticipating that in Canada, it doesn't sound like that's a huge deal. At least it's not creating a problem or a ripple effect at this point. No, we, I haven't seen it yet, Jill, and, and frankly, I don't expect it. All right. Well, Dr. Elliot, again, it is always great to chat with you. Thank you so much for joining us and talking more about this today. Pleasure, Jill. Bye-bye. This is Mornings with Simi. We are making sense of the markets with Lori Pinkowski, a senior portfolio manager at Canaccord Genuity. You can contact her team at 604-695-LORI or visit the website at pinkowski.ca. Lori, good morning to you. Good morning, Jill. How are you? Very well. Yourself? I'm doing great, thank you. And markets are uh, slightly in the green again today. Um, this week's been pretty good out there. This is kind of where markets are sticking to the bad news equals good news uh, type narrative because any negative news really for the economy means the Fed could 
uh, kind of pause on interest rate hikes and possibly uh, reduce rates at some point next year. Um, and investors are very focused on a number of economic reports this week. Uh, we saw this morning estimates of U.S. GDP came in at 2.1%. Again, that's slightly lower than the 2.4% expected. Uh, tomorrow, we get data on uh, the personal consumption expenditure, one of the Fed's preferred inflation gauges. Uh, Friday, we're going to see non-farm payroll, uh, which will be released then. And see why the, all of this is important. All of these pieces really help paint a picture uh, give us an update on the economy and maybe give us some insight into what the Fed might do next. Um, they're expected to meet in September. Uh, at this point, it looks like they may pause on rates uh, in Canada. They're meeting next week and uh, also looking for a pause there as well. Uh, Q2 GDP uh, will be announced Friday uh, for Canada, and it's expected to have grown only 1.2% year over year. So again, we're looking at a slowing economy, which is kind of good for interest rates. But again, what we have to be watching out for, uh, in my opinion, into next year is whether there could be a mild recession, any recession at all. All right. Lots to be looking out for and watching out for there. What about uh, Canadian banks and the earnings uh, that we're seeing there? Yeah, you know, we were reporting on a couple of the banks last week when we spoke. Um, now BMO came in below expectations. Scotiabank also missed earnings expectations. But both of those stocks are up slightly since reporting. BMO of 1.5%, Bank of Nova Scotia up 2.5% since reporting. But again, this is after they were under some pressure, about uh, down about 7% ahead of earnings results. So I guess some investors are looking at picking up some of these banks at lower prices. I mean, the dividend yield on a lot of them are... Uh, is looking really positive. And one key theme in um, the bank's earnings calls were higher loan loss provisions. And again, loan loss provisions are the kind of extra funds banks set aside in case borrowers may not be able to maintain uh, their payments now that, you know, loans, mortgages, everything has become more expensive. And for example, BMO set aside uh, just shy of or just over a billion dollars for credit losses. Uh, and Scotia allocated about $700 million. So again, they see a lot more than what you and I are, are going to see in terms of um, what people are able to pay and are they able to make their payments. So again, this isn't totally positive for the banks, of course, but they are being more conservative uh, by setting some money aside. And, and what you've also seen is that um, expenses for some of these banks have increased, uh, trading is lower, uh, some have uh, shed some jobs as well, and that's kind of normal uh, in a slowing economy. Hmm, interesting. And uh, so we're seeing that from the big banks. And this is something uh, we talked about on the show yesterday, and that was some new real estate numbers uh, from the, the Real Estate Board of BC. But uh, I know you're also looking at ho house prices uh, in Vancouver, Toronto, and some of the spots uh, where we're, we're looking at year over year. Yeah, you know, what we were looking at is year-over-year -year, um, sales and month-to-month -month sales, actually. Uh, what you're seeing is that uh, sales have been declining. In Vancouver, home sales fell 8% from June to July. But in Toronto, uh, sales were down, you know, almost 30% uh, from July, uh, sorry, from June to July. And so that's a big number. And, you know, a lot of the time where sales go, prices could go. There's one kind of uh, caveat in that um, there's a tight inventory, as we all know, right? And that's why home prices have stayed higher. But again, if people can't afford their payments uh, because they've raised rates so much, that could change and there could be more inventory on the market. So I think the real estate market is that 
one um, one part that we really need to watch closely over the next six to 12 months and see how that goes. Uh, again, if they pause rates now, so far the consumer has been able uh, to keep up. People are working and we have low unemployment in Canada and the U.S. And so that's, uh, again, something that we're really focused on. We look at a lot of leading indicators. We look at the real estate market to try to uh, decipher kind of, you know, where the markets will be going. At this point, there's momentum in the markets. We had a softer couple of weeks in August, uh, only to be stronger this week. And I think um, it's really going to depend on how these meetings go in Canada uh, in terms of rates uh, for us. But what uh, all eyes are focused on is the Fed meeting in September. All right, looking ahead to that, let's talk as well about financial lessons when teaching your kids and your grandkids and some very uh, important things to get across. Yeah, so in the spirit of uh, going back to school uh, next week for for kids in BC, we thought it was important to to talk about how you can, you know, talk to your kids and grandkids about money. Um, It can be a sensitive subject depending on, on the family, but it's important to educate your Uh, children and grandchildren early so they can really establish good habits and and so that they're comfortable talking about it Um, you know and and our upbringing is uh, plays a big role in shaping our relationship with money Um, because a lot of kids mimic what their parents do and and of course parents are the biggest influencer uh, on children's financial behavior so you know what are some key lessons parents and grandparents can pass down to their kids I think you know, teaching them about wants versus needs. I think that's important. Teaching your kids the basics such as like food, shelter, clothing, healthcare, education. Uh, and if you can afford it, of course, savings are all really important. Those extras like movie tickets, video games, you know, a new cell phone, new computer, that kind of stuff. You know, make sure they understand the difference of what they need to have versus what they want to have. Uh, and back to school shopping is a great opportunity to really start teaching your, your kids about spending decisions. Interesting, too, when you say that, when you talk about parents being the biggest influence on on children and their financial behaviors, uh, I wonder if that also uh, kind of, because there has been a bit of a shift as far as buying things on credit, buying things with cash, and I I think that comes into what we're talking about savings as well and how that works into it. Exactly. I mean, if you really want to instill good financial habits, one of the most important lessons that you can teach your kids is the importance of saving money, right, for a rainy day. Or, you know, I mean, just look at what's happening right now with rates going higher. I mean, I can't tell you how many people told me, you know, I went on variable because rates are always low. Well, no, that's not the case. So, again, teaching kids from the ground up about savings so that, that they can get through those rainy days is important. Um, you know, it, what a lot of people don't know, at, at three years old, your kids can already grasp basic financial concepts. By age seven, they have really already formed money habits. So you have a short amount of time or a small window to really teach them about savings and, you know, even opening up a bank account um, for young children, uh, teaching them to, to go there and to, you know, put some of their uh, hard earned, uh, you know, uh, savings in there. If, you know, you're giving them an allowance weekly or you're paying them for, for chores at home, that can be a, a powerful way and a powerful learning tool to really get them ready for when they're older. And, and again, setting savings goals, right? Like why are they saving? It's not, it's not good enough to just say, you know, save your allowance on a weekly basis or part of it. Um, you know, I think it's important to uh, explain, you know, and have that discussion of what you're saving for. So if you want to buy a, a video game uh, and they have $10 allowance each week, help them figure out how long it's going to take them to actually reach that goal 
based on their savings rate. And and money management with a part-time job for older kids, I, I think, is important. I mean, I couldn't wait to get working when uh, when I was young, and that was instilled in me from my parents. And so I think that is also important. You know, even if kids are going to school, a part-time job is a good way to start learning how to, you know, be part of a team, managing your time, uh, taxes, you know, having a boss, all that kind of stuff. And you know, always leave room for mistakes. I mean, everyone's gone through mistakes uh, uh, in their adult life, I'm sure, with money. Um, and so allow your kids to have some responsibility to also make that mistake or mistakes and learn from those and sit down and discuss them. And, you know, I, another way that a lot of people help their children and grandchildren learn how to save is by opening a, a tax-free savings account when they're of age as well. So, again, this is later on uh, when they're 19 years old. You can open up a TFSA you can start contributing. They can start learning and understanding how investing works. Because, again, a lot of kids are taught how to get a career, how to find a job, but they're not taught how to invest or what the markets all mean. So I think that's also important as a financial advisor, portfolio manager. Often we're sitting down uh, with children as you know they get a little older in their late teens, early 20s uh, of our clients so that we're, we're helping uh, educate them about investing. Right. Because like you said, leave room for mistakes. But if you do all of this, maybe the mistakes won't be as big or there won't be as many. Exactly. And they learn them early and they'll be much smaller uh, at that point than later on in life. It is very good advice. Uh, Lori, we'll leave it there for this morning, but great to talk with you again. You as well, Jill. Thanks. Have a great day. You too. That is Lori Pinkowski, a senior portfolio manager at Canaccord Genuity. You can call Lori and her team today at 604-695-LORI with any questions you have about investing or retirement. You can also visit the website pinkowski.ca.